Well, good evening. Take your Bible and open to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 7. And uh, let me read the first four verses, Romans chapter 7. Paul says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. Tonight we're coming back to this chapter. It's the second time in these verses in Romans chapter 7. You might remember that... Chapter 7 lays out the proper role of and the function of the law in the life of the believer or the relationship of the New Testament believer to the law of God in light of the teaching of justification by faith alone, particularly with the issue of sanctification. I told you there's two errors that really need to be avoided, uh, legalism and antinomianism. Legalism says you have to keep the law in order to be saved and in order to be sanctified, both which are unbiblical. And I said legalism probably finds itself most common in the church by people coming and adding to the law, people elevating the preferences and man-made rules to the level of biblical authority and then expecting others to live by those rules. Antinomianism, on the other hand, is the opposite extreme. Uh, Anti-against, nomos law, so against the law. Those people are against the law. So the antinomian means, well, if we're not saved by, uh, by works of the law, then we're free to do anything we want to do. Right? Do, do whatever I want in Christ because God has forgiven me. And, and both extremes, uh, both ideas are not true. I say we need to be somewhere in the middle between legalism and antinomianism. The law isn't going to save us. On the other hand, we should honor God's moral law and obedience from our heart. At the same time, we should realize that we can't keep God's law by our flesh and our own effort. Uh, we can obey God only through the power of the person of the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit. And only in obedience to him can we walk in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord. As I was thinking this week, there's another issue uh, that we probably need to address up front just to make sure that we're all on the same page and uh, have some clarity on. It's a failure to balance our responsibility and God's sovereignty in the area of sanctification. It's true that God is sovereign over the realm of salvation. It's true that God predestines. It's true that God draws us. He justifies us. He sanctifies us. He glorifies us. It says in Romans 8 and 30. On the other side, however, of the equation... There is what one author called, which I appreciated this terminology because I'd never heard it before, sweaty sanctification. That's a good, that's a good picture, sweaty sanctification. He says, look, it's the reality that our Bibles don't read themselves or our prayer time or fasting or memorization or meditation doesn't come spontaneously, right, without our concerted effort. Spiritual disciplines, he says, aren't passive, especially when your alarm sounds at 530 and you get up to read and pray. Right, so there's a, there's another side of this issue, and there's an increasing uh, and growing, meaning more popular, uh, error that emphasizes that one sanctification is simply the natural result of just one appreciating justification. Right, we just appreciate justification. You simply uh, become holy in your practice and behavior and your desires and attitudes just by merely being reminded of what the Lord Jesus has done for you in your justification on the cross. Now, while it is true that historically what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, of course, is immensely important and absolutely finished, there is a parallel truth in the Bible that says that we are to work out our sanctification. We are to discipline ourselves for godliness, uh, 1 Timothy 4, 7. We are to devote ourselves to scripture reading and preaching, uh, 1 Timothy two thirteen and following. We are to discipline ourselves. We are to subdue ourselves, as it says in 1 Corinthians 9, 27. Probably the one that we're most familiar with is Philippians 12 and 2, 
Paul says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So again, here's another uh, one of those areas where you've got these kind of twin apparent paradoxical truths or uh, apparent tensions here, two tracks of truth side by side. God is at work in us, but on the other hand, we're also called to work out, not work for, but to work out our salvation. I mean, God has promised that he's going to conform us to the image of his son, but in time there are still spiritual disciplines that we are responsible for and that we need to practice. And and again, you see that in the history of the church and the lives of those who left an impact in God's kingdom, uh, influential Christian leaders of the past, uh, missionaries, martyrs, etc., and so forth. Their regular life pattern and practice was private prayer, corporate prayer, uh, scripture reading, scripture memorization, meditation, solitude, uh, some journaled. Uh, All of them came and sat under the preaching, the regular preaching of the word of God, etc., and so forth. So I bring that up because I don't want us to fall off the uh, balance beam, as it were. And my balance beam has three sides here. So we don't want to fall into antinomianism or legalism. But on the other hand, we also don't want to fall into this let go and let God kind of mentality and don't do anything except look at at, at Jesus, uh, that kind of mentality. We should, again, look at Jesus. Uh, At the same time, we should, out of love, obey, uh, actively obey the word of God as God has commanded us. So in Christ... He saves, but we're to work, right? We're to, we're to fight, to labor, to battle, to walk, to work in active obedience uh, to the commands of the Scripture. So salvation is monergistic, meaning it's one work. It's the work of God only. But sanctification is synergistic. God working in us and us in obedience following the commands of the Scripture. So I just wanted to put that in just in case uh, you were wondering if I had any thoughts on that. Now remember Paul already in uh, Romans chapter 7 has said some things about the law. He said that the law was never given in a way that could justify anyone. Again, that's completely opposite to the thinking of the Jews at the time because that's what they believed. They believed that if they kept the law, they would be saved. But Paul says in Romans 3.19, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and the whole world be accountable to God. So the entire world is under the law of God. The entire world, every human being. The Jews received the law through Moses. God writes his, heart, his law on the hearts of, uh, uh, of the Gentiles. The entire world sits under the law. Therefore, the entire world sits what? Condemned. Because that's what the law does. The law condemns and curses everybody because of our inability to perfectly obey the law. Galatians 3 and 10. For as many are of the works of the law are under the curse or under a curse, For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So again, if you want to go into God's presence and you want to do that by justifying yourself by your obedience uh, to the law, uh, then you're going to have to walk in perfection because that's what God demands. Absolute perfection. Perfect obedience. You have to abide by all things in the book of the law. So again, you've heard the, the questions. Have you ever lied? And if anybody was to raise their hand and say, well... If I ask the question, who has not lied, then we can be assured that you have just lied right then, right? All you have to do to be a lawbreaker is break the law one time, right? But God demands perfection. So if you're going to go based on your effort, which I've told you before, is what every entire world religious system does, is they're trying to work their way into heaven. No one's justified by keeping the law. Nobody can do it. That's why Paul says back in Romans 3 and 10, he says, there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands there's none who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There's no one who does good, not even one. That's why he says in Romans 3 and 20, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight, but through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So again, you're not going to be able to work your way into heaven. You're not going to be able to keep the law perfectly. Everybody is condemned by the law. What the law does is bring the knowledge of sin. So again, no one's justified before God by keeping the law, Galatians 3 and 11. That's why we're always told that the righteous man lives by what? Faith, right? Faith, not by our own deeds, but by faith in the God, faith in the Word of God, faith in the Son of the Lord, Jesus, the Son of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, as it says in Galatians three and thirteen. So again, what Paul is doing is he's defining the Christian's relationship to the law, and he says that the Christian has died to the law. 
He says the Christian is no longer under the law, no longer under the curse of the law, no longer under the weight and the burden of the law, but the Christian is under grace. Again, Paul says through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And we noted last time four aspects of that, that the law comes and really defines sin. The law reveals sin's nature. The law exposes sin's power and sin's grip on our heart. And then the law unveils sin's deceit in our life. So the seeds of rebellion are present within us. And then the law comes and turns that sin into actual rebellion when it has been clarified or clearly defined. And then we disobey. I told you, I gave you an example last time. The sign says, don't step on the grass. It's an easy call for me what the next thing I'm going to do, right? There's just, there's a rebellion. In the days it said, don't drive, you know, the speed limit is 55 on the state freeways. Not in my foot. You know? You know, I used to live out in West. You might go three days before you see another car, 55, out across this desert. You know what I'm saying? The law comes and says, don't do. There's something within us that says, I'm going to do the very opposite of what the law. That's what the law does. It, 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 the seeds of rebellion are there, but the law stirs up within us that rebellion. And I told you that rebellion is always sin against God. And sin has such a power on us in our natural being that it is perverted and twisted us completely. So every man born in the world is a slave. Every man born in this world is a slave. And we do those things we should not do, we ought not to do. The law comes, the law exposes our conduct. We excuse ourselves. We call it, well, it was a mistake, it was a misstep or whatever. We try to convince ourselves it's not as bad as, well, that guy, I'm not as bad as that guy over there in the corner of the room, right? But the standard is not the guy in the corner of the room. The standard is God, and God demands perfection. The, the standard is not, you're not as bad as whatever. You're not doing as bad things. God demands perfection in his law. He demands absolute obedience. So when we place ourselves under that kind of system, again, we're putting on a weight, a burden that we can't bear. And again, we're putting ourselves back under that curse that God has through Christ, relieved us of. Now, God's moral law comes, and again, I told you last time, the moral law of God reveals the heart of God, the will of God on a moral level. And and it's designed to help us live holy lives before him. It's the truth rooted in in the Ten Commandments. And, And again, those truths help us to live a holy life. They don't justify us. So we can't perfectly obey them, right? But on the other hand, the issue is we're responsible to Inability doesn't excuse our responsibility or abdicate or absolve our responsibility. This is God's demand. He demands us to live like this. And again, apart from the indwelling person and work of the Holy Spirit, uh, taking out that heart of stone before we come to faith in Christ and then giving us a heart of flesh, and again, the Holy Spirit coming and dwelling within us, giving us new desires and new abilities through the person of the Holy Spirit to do so, we would never carry out the commands of the God, uh, the, the, the commands of the, of, of the law uh, in our flesh by our own power. So, so that's in part of where he's headed with this, that we can't justify ourselves. We are justified. What's our relationship with the law? We don't run back under the law. We stand under grace. And I told you there's two verses that really stand behind what Paul's talking about here in, in chapter 7. Uh, again, the overall topic of chapter 7 is sanctification. Again, what does justification by faith alone done for the Christian, right? Uh, it's a life that sets us free from sin. Uh, that's true, but what does it look like? How, how is it accomplished? Chapter 6, when we were in there, that talked about our relationship to sin, talked about who we were when we were in Adam, what our relationship to sin was like then, now that we're saved, now that we're in Christ, united with Christ. Uh, again, just very briefly, look back up in chapter 6. Because of our justification, how are we justified? By grace alone, through faith alone, in the person of Jesus Christ alone, right? I mean, we're all condemned. We're all only saved by God's kindness. What was our relationship to sin before? Verse 11, uh, chapter 6. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Right? There's a great transformation that's happened once you come to faith in Christ. Consider yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Drop down verse 17. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. 
Verse 18, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. We spent a lot of time on that, those, those words. You were and you became. Right? You were and you became. You were slaves of sin, but then you became obedient. You, having, you became obedient, having been freed from sin. You became slaves of righteousness. Right? So there's a great emancipation found in Christ. A great emancipation found by our union with the Savior. A great change and transformation in our life. We were, we became. In Adam, we were one thing. In Christ, we're something else. And I told you the last time that the great exchange is uh, seen in the great gift uh, down at the end of Romans chapter 6, verse 23. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now let me ask you, what do you have to do to earn a free gift? How much does it cost you to earn a free gift? Do you have to beg to get a free gift? Right? It's all the work of God. God gives that free gift out of grace because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the great thing about the gospel. Christ frees us from what we rightly deserve because of our sin, which is death. And Christ gives to us what we do not deserve, which is forgiveness from that sin. Therefore, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Again, we don't save ourselves by our own effort. We don't save ourselves by obedience to the law because none of us can perfectly obey God's law. Likewise, we don't live the Christian life by our own efforts and our own obedience to the law. We live our Christian life by the power of Christ and again by the indwelling of the person of the Holy Spirit. And that's Romans chapter 8, right? So we'll, we'll open that up when we get to that chapter. That's where we're headed. But again, right now, chapter 7 is really a, a reapplication, a repeating of what Paul said earlier in the book, Romans 5 and 10, when he said, if we are, For if while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, here it is, we shall be saved by his life. Right? Reconciled, justified. How are we going to be saved by his life? That's kind of the question. So again, both justification and sanctification are found in the person of Christ, and the answer for life under the sun is Christ. He, he's the answer. Christ is the answer to our right standing before God the Father in perfect righteousness. And Christ is the answer for the practical living out of a justified life in time. It's the person of Jesus Christ. Christ is the answer when we stumble and fall and don't perfectly obey, even though God has freed us from our slavery to sin and our flesh takes over and our flesh gets the best of us. The answer still goes back to the person of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 6, verse 14 says, For sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under law. Again, we're asking the question, what's the relationship of those justified by faith alone to the law? We are not under the law. We need to remember that. As a believer, the law no longer has the power to condemn us. We've been removed from that realm, taken to another realm. You shall not be, or sin shall not be master over you. You're not under law, but under grace. So the position of every true believer in relationship to the law is we're under grace. Again, we've been freed, put in the realm of grace by the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the position of every true believer. That's the position of every believer with reference to the law. We are dead to the law. We're no longer under the law. right? Every true believer is under grace. And Paul is teaching us for that reality to play into practice to be freed from the law there has to be a death a death has to occur has to occur so we can be freed from the law and therefore now united to another person that's specifically the person of the lord jesus christ that's what this portion of scripture begins to look at the first four verses again look at verse one <coughs> i told you it's an axiom <coughs> excuse me it's just a self-evident truth Romans 7, verse 1. Do you not know, brethren, for in speaking to those who know law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? Again, do you not know? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is everybody knows. What is he saying? Look, the law only has jurisdiction over a person after they live. Once they're dead, the law no longer has jurisdiction over us. Okay? So when you die and you go to heaven, if there were cars up there, which I don't think there is, you can drive as fast as you want. Right? That's probably what they think when they're in Germany on the Autobahn. They've already reached it, right? As fast as they want to go, right? The law only has jurisdiction over a person 
as long as that person's alive. When that person's dead, the law can't reach into the casket and say, now you've got to do this or do that or what you can't, right? So then Paul's going to give an illustration of that truth, of that axiomatic truth, that self-evident truth. Verse 2. For the married woman is bound by the law to her husband while, she, while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. Verse 3. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she's joined to another man. Now again, I told you, all that is, verses 2 and 3, is nothing more than an illustration. Period, exclamation part, uh, exclamation mark, uh, new paragraph, uh, go to the next page. Right? It's just an illustration. And all he's saying is, look, again, as long as you're alive, the law has jurisdiction over you. Once you die, the law has no grasp upon that person. The law can't touch that person. The person is finished with the law. No longer under the dominion and authority of the law. Again, death brings him into the subjection to the law. Again, when you're dead, no more power over you. And again, it says, for example, let me give you the marriage relationship. That's what he's saying. The death of a husband. Right? The death of a husband releases a wife, from, a wife from that law that bound her legally in that marriage contract. If the husband dies, she is now free. The law has no more power over her. She's free to marry another. Now, that's the picture that he is using here, the illustration. He's not talking, per se, about marriage. Who can get married? Who can get divorced? Who can get That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about sanctification. He's just using a common illustration. He's trying to help us understand that as a believer, we have died to the law. We've died to the law. Therefore, we can now be joined to another person, specifically the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> now, again, last chapter, Paul uses the illustration of slavery because it was a common um, everyday event in Rome when he's writing. He says, everybody born in the world is a slave. Everybody serves somebody. And again, uh, the apostle showed us in that chapter how one man could buy a slave from another person. And, and so this illustration of marriage is somewhat along the same, line, same lines, but it's even a greater illustration because there's no buying and selling in marriage. But in the marriage relationship, there's actually a deeper bond, a deeper, a oneness relationships a relationship that exists in the context of the life together that again ceases at death. So again, a slave was bought and owned by somebody and he could be sold and sold to somebody else. There's a certain relationship, but not to the depth that there is in a marriage relationship. But again, at death, the law removes the wife from that relationship. That relationship is over forever. Now that person can enter into a new relationship. And again, the whole point of the illustration is to help those who believe to understand all that has happened to us in Christ and to understand the depth of the relationship that we have united with the person of Jesus Christ. So now Paul's going to give the application in verse 4. And, and I told you last time, verse 4 is just a profound statement. It's back, packed with the theological truth. It really is a declaration what it means to be a Christian. It shows the character of those who belong to Christ. And last time we made it partway through, so we're going to kind of hit it running again here, verse 4. He says, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was, excuse me, raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Now, I, I've told you this before. There's some confusion in the world with that question. There's a lot of confusion in the church. But, but there's no, there, there is no similarity between a Christian and a non-Christian. Just none. And Paul's going to, in this verse, give four truths that show that. Four truths or four distinctions that lay out the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. And he says, look, as a Christian, the first truth is you have an entirely new life. Right? You have an entirely new life. You need to realize that about yourself. And Paul puts it in terms, in this verse, of death and then rising from the dead. He says, you were made to die to the law so that you might be joined to another, to him who is raised from the dead. Made to die in order that you would be raised from the dead. And I told you that verb made to die is uh, aorist passive, meaning that it's aorist, it's something that's already happened in the past, and it's passive, meaning you didn't do it. Somebody else did it to you. This is what God did. So you did not put yourself to death. God did. At the moment of your conversion, 
You were made to die, right? You were made to die. Romans 6 and 6, remember that? Knowing that our... Go ahead and just look up there so you won't remember it. You can actually look at it. Romans 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who is died is freed from sin. So again, who you used to be before you came to faith in Christ, the old man, who you were in Adam, he is dead. He was crucified. What happens when you get crucified? Pretty simple. You die. The old you has been done away with. Right? Murdered, put on the cross to die with Christ. Verse 8. If you have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God, even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Again, remember I told you when we went through that chapter, I said this is all positional truth. It's just wonderful truth piled upon wonderful truth that points us all back to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. What God has done for us in Christ, the new position we have in Christ. So to be a Christian means you have an entirely new life. And I encourage you hundreds of times going through, maybe not quite that many times, but numerous times as we're going through that chapter, don't dig the old man up. We have nothing to do with who we used to be. Some people are trapped in systems where they go back and that's all they do. I'm a recovering fill-in-the-blank. You're not a recovering fill-in-the-blank. You're a new creature in Christ. That old you is dead. That is freedom. That's tremendous freedom. Right? You, in Christ, have an entirely new life. I read it again this morning, right? You, Ephesians 2, you used to be dead in trespasses and sins. You were under condemnation. You were under the curse of the law. But now, because God is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved you, he made you alive together with Christ. So again, there's nothing so fundamentally different than a Christian from a non-Christian. Nothing so radically different. The non-Christian is in the process of receiving justice for their life. And justice for their life, the wages of sin is death, both physical and eternal. The Christian, however, is not. The Christian is passed through the realm of death and no longer under the dominion, its dominion and power. The Christian is no longer under the dominion of the power of sin. The Christian has been raised to a new life in Christ. Therefore, the Christian, to be a Christian, means you have undergone a profound change. Again, you have an entirely new life. That was point number one. Now, because you have an entirely new life, point number two is that a Christian is someone who's entered into an entirely new relationship. A Christian is somebody who's entered into a new relationship. You have a new relationship to the law, and now you have a new relationship to God. Again, therefore, my brethren, you are also made to die to the law. Again, Romans 6 and 14, sin shall not be mastered over you. You're not under the law. Right? So if, we're die, if we've died to the law, we're not under the law, why do we run back to the law? That makes no sense. So what does it mean that you have died or you were made to die to the law? Again, does it mean that you're free to do anything you want to do? And I can't answer that question. Of course, of course, is no. That's antinomianism. Right? The believer, you are not under the law, but under grace. And I've told you a number of times that grace certainly doesn't encourage us to further sin. Grace frees us from our life, our bondage to sin, and enslaves us to God and, and causes us to walk in joy because of our relationship with God. Right? So you were also made to die of the law. doesn't mean that a Christian just throws the law out in total, dismisses the moral law. Bible says that Paul says that the law is good, perfect, and holy, uh, and, and uh, 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 the, the Christian should cherish the law. We should practice the law. We should honor the law. We, we should want to live uh, the, the way God wants us to live. We're not under the burden of the law, the condemnation of the law, but again, since the moral law of God reveals the moral character of God, uh, the will of God, since it is the road map to holiness, if you will, the Christian wants to live that life that honors God, that honors God always, not taking the Lord's name in vain, that is always uh, uh, thinking about God, thinking about Christ, not creating any false idols, obeying parents, etc., and so forth. So again, for the Christian to be no longer under the law means that he is no longer in a position where he or she are trying to justify themselves before God by keeping the law, and they're no longer thinking they can approach God on their own, on their own holiness, by their own efforts. Because a Christian realizes that there's no man on earth who continually does good, no, not one. 
There's no one who never sins. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Christian approaches God not through his own efforts, not through his own righteousness, but the righteousness of the substitute, his substitute. Right? He, he understands that a man, if he keeps the entire law yet stumbles at one point, he, 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 he's guilty of the entire law. He realizes again by trying to go before God, justifying himself by what he does or does not do, he's placing himself under the curse of the law. And we are not under the law, we're under grace. So again, the Christian who realizes that, that he's not under the law but under grace, approaches God, approaches uh, um, God again, not through his own effort, but through the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, Romans 10.4. The Christian realizes that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to whoever believes. The Christian realizes, Galatians 3 and 13, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Right? So, so the Christian is in a, in a great position, a new relationship, a new position of the law. Right? He, he knows it's Christ himself who satisfied the law's demands. The Christian knows that he's free from the curse of the law. The Christian, therefore, is one who has a new relationship to the law and a new relationship to God. The Christian realizes that he's no longer under condemnation. The Christian realizes that he has peace with God. He's been reconciled to God. He's no longer a child of rebellion. He's no longer a slave of sin. He's been born again, alive to Christ, right? Alive from the dead to God in Christ, united with the living Savior, right? So a Christian is one who has a new life in Christ, a, a new relationship, again, to God, a new relationship to the law. He's no longer, again, receiving condemnation or wrath, uh, he stands firm, confident in this new realm, this new relationship, this new position, this position, this position of grace, all by the unmerited kindness, the grace of God. Third truth about the Christian is this: He has an entirely new purpose in life, an entirely new purpose in life. Therefore, my brethren, you also made were died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to Him who is raised from the dead. Here, here's why in order that we might bear fruit for God. The Christian has an entirely new purpose in life, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Listen, the non-Christian has no idea what I'm talking about. The non-Christian knows nothing of this new purpose, because all the non-Christian does is live for himself and unto himself. Everything that a non-Christian does is with selfish motives. It does not matter how apparently... Uh, outwardly moral a non-Christian is, how kind that person is, how benevolent that person is. The non-Christian is still in the position of being dead in their trespasses and sins, still accountable before God, still standing before God as one of God's enemies. So again, no matter how cleaned up a non-Christian may look on the outside, and we'd have to admit we have met some non-Christians that are probably nicer than some Christians we know. Right? But no matter how they present themselves on the outside, the non Christian is still unrighteous. The non Christian lacks the righteousness that that person needs to stand before God. And it's a borrowed righteousness, it comes from the person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, the non Christian, no matter how nice they are, are still condemned eternally. The non Christian, if you want to get down to it, has broken the first commandment. They have no other gods before me. That non-Christian is an idolater because they refuse to repent and they actually worship and serve themselves, not the God who made them. And if they've broken one law, they are lawbreakers. You don't need to go to the other nine. All the other ones do is just continue to ha hammer the nail in deeper and deeper. Whatever the non-Christian does, the non-Christian does to satisfy themselves. Because a non-Christian is self-centered, egocentric, proud. Again, they only please themselves. They live up to their own standard of right. They live up to their own standard of wrong. They trust in their own efforts to save themselves. They trust in their own efforts to make themselves uh, able to stand before a holy God. But the Christian has an entirely new life, an entirely new purpose in life. And again, the Christian's purpose in life is to bear fruit for God. Again, you were raised, you might, uh, verse 4, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that you might bear fruit for God. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's the definition of a Christian. The Christian is somebody who bears fruit for God. 
Now, we've talked about this numerous times before, but this fruit for God is really the fruit of righteousness. You see it in your actions. You see it in attitudes. It's uh, the, the, the fruit of righteousness in the book of Galatians. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit. It's a life that seeks to honor God, a life that seeks to honor Christ. It's a life that lives for them, a life that wants to honor them, a life that wants to exalt them, a life that wants to serve them. The old life, apart from Christ, the life that we lived in the flesh, the unredeemed life, the unregenerate life, again, even when we were there, all we did is we lived for ourselves. But now something has changed. In Christ, we bear fruit for God. Right? We want to see them honored. We want to see them glorified. Again, we, we worship them, and we want to see every man and woman we know fall on their knee and worship God and worship Christ because God and Christ are worthy to be worshipped. Not just so that men would be saved and not go to hell. That's a benefit, obviously. But God is worthy of worship. All men should worship God. Now, just this last week, and maybe you saw the headline, I don't know, but I became aware of a sad situation that made national news. It involved a former pastor in the Nashville area and a professional baseball player. And I was familiar with this pastor a number of years ago. And he was accused of having an affair uh, with somebody in his congregation, somebody who he was supposed to be providing marriage counseling for and her husband, the, the baseball player. And it's since been found out that this pastor, uh, who was... Uh, uh, or I should say this, I have since found out that this pastor, again, who I was aware of a number of years ago, who was a very strong supporter, a very strong ally of biblical truth. In fact, I even think I have one of his books in my study someplace. A number of years ago, his theology started to drift, go drift. I didn't know this until this last week. So his theology started to drift when he began to read a book by a then note the word, a then influential pastor and author that promoted an erroneous teaching of sanctification. So in this popular book, this author basically argued that the best way to increase your sanctification is stop trying to increase your sanctification. Just look at Jesus. That's why I brought it up at the beginning. Just look at Jesus. Remember what Jesus accomplished for you and then do nothing. But that's not a biblically accurate view of sanctification or living the sanctified life. Again, we should look at Christ. We should remember what Christ has done for us. But again, as I referenced earlier, the command for the Scripture is for us to work out our salvation. Not work, but work out. Salvation that God is working out in us, conforming us to the image of Christ. But we have responsibilities on a spiritual level. And again, we're called to fight sin. We're called to mortify the flesh, put it to death. We're called to obey straightforward the biblical commands, not just look at Jesus and do nothing. Now, I'm going to give you a real-world situation that you'll go, okay, I get it. I, I understand that. Here's a real-world situation, right? Uh, uh, there's a young man that you know. He's tempted by looking at improper things, sinful things he shouldn't look online. And at the moment he's struggling, you come up and talk to him. And what do you say to him? What do you say to him? Do you say to that individual, you need to remember what Christ did for you. You need to remember how he fled from sexual immorality and perfectly and did so perfectly and your failure to do so was placed upon him and now through faith in his spirit that his spirit dwells in you and if you act upon your temptation that would show a lack of appreciation for Christ's substitutionary death on your behalf so you need to really stop and think about that is that what you say to that man in the moment of his temptation or do you stop that moment at that moment that man is struggling and do you say I'm going to command you to obedience 2 Timothy 2 verse 2 says flee from youthful lusts just look at Jesus or obey the command of Scripture. Flee from youthful lust. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. There are active steps that you can do to remove yourself from that position of temptation. Again, Philippians 2 and 12. Just as you've always obeyed, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Again, God is at work in us, but we're also called to work out. Right? Salvation monergistic sanctification synergistic we're to work out not work for but to work out our sanctification flee from youthful lusts that's the answer that you give to that young man now by the way it probably wouldn't surprise you if i told you that very same author who wrote that book that this other author other pastor just fell into sin after he started reading that book 
that author who taught that sanctification is nothing more than just looking at Jesus and not actively obeying the scripture, not fighting sin, not mortifying the flesh, you wouldn't probably not be surprised to find out that he was forced to resign from a senior pastor position of a nationally known Presbyterian church in Florida after admitting to an extramarital affair. Right? The uh, Florida Presbytery uh, defrocked him and ruled him unfit uh, for Christian ministry. Right? So one guy fallen follows another guy who's fallen because neither one of them are following the scripture. Right? Neither one of them are mortifying the flesh. They're giving into uh, their, their lusts. A Christian, on the other hand, has an entirely new purpose in life. And those who are not actively bearing fruit, the fruit of righteousness, those who are not fleeing unrighteousness, those who bring a scandal upon the name of Christ, probably are not who they claim to be in the first place. They weren't pastors, right? They, they weren't. You go, well, that's a pretty bold statement. Okay, in case you miss it the first time, I'll say it again. They weren't who they claimed to be. At least they're giving no evidence outwardly that they're who they claim to be. Because they're sinning and leading other people into sin, bringing reproach upon the name of Christ. Therefore, my brethren, you also are made to die to the law, to the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another to him who is raised from the dead. Here's why. In order that you might bear fruit for God. So I would suggest again, we probably shouldn't listen to the teachers who of our day who tell us that you can, we talked about this before too, that you can accept Jesus as your Savior, but not your Lord. You can get the fire insurance, but don't have to fall into the obedience category. Right? And then also don't bear any fruit for God. When God's word says the very opposite, that his people, that who he has saved, actually bear fruit for him. Right? He's the one who's doing that work. Now again, the natural man, the unregenerate man, knows nothing of what I'm just talking about. The unregenerate man has no fruit bearing for God. Because the non-Christian hates God. The non-Christian hates the law of God. The, the non-Christian despises God's Christ and wishes that both God and Christ were dead. Because the non-Christian wants to be God, the non-Christian wants to continue to serve themselves without any possibility of being hindered by uh, God and His uh, and His truth. Right? They want to satisfy themselves, and they want to self uh, continue their self-exalting efforts. But that's not the Christian. And again, the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is radical. Right? The, the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is radical. The Christian has a new life. Number one, the Christian is one who's entered into an entirely new relationship to the law and he has a new relationship to God. Number three, the Christian has a new purpose in life that he might bear fruit for God. Number four, out of this verse, Paul says the Christian is defined by the fact that he's aware that he's been provided with a new power. He's been provided with a new power, a new strength. A new ability has entered into his life because of his union with Christ. You also are made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that you might bear fruit for God. The NIV says you died to the law that you might belong to another. The King James, and I'm not uh, uh, sure about the, uh, uh, the New King James, but I'm not sure about the King James. Perhaps it says the same thing. It says that you may be married to another. That's a good picture. Right? So if you're a Christian, then you've been freed from the power and the penalty of the law. Uh, the, the curse has been endured and satisfied by Christ. And you've endured or you've satisfied that demand because of your union with Christ. The Christian has died to the law. And because of that, uh, because of that death and because of that union with Christ, that Christian is now married to Christ, joined with him, a deep, intimate, personal relationship. He belongs to him. He's one with him, one with him in life, one with him in his resurrection. And we've talked about this before. There's a new power. Christ said he has the power to give life. And again, as I said this morning, eternal life is not just when you die. It's a new quality of life in time. John 5, 21, Jesus, for just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he wishes. Paul, uh, Ephesians uh, 118 says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glory and the inheritance of his saint and the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. Philippians 3, uh, verse 8, I count all things to be lost and be the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count of them but rubbish, that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death, verse 11, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. I would suggest to you there's a tremendous amount of power being uh, exercised upon somebody who's being raised from the dead. It's the power of Christ. There's a new power in you if you're a Christian, and you're aware of that fact of this new power. Now turn over to, uh, put a mark there, we'll come back, but turn over a a couple books to uh, 2 Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter uh, thirteen. Verse three. Second Corinthians thirteen, verse three. Since you are seeking for proof of the Christ who speaks in me, and who is not weak toward you but mighty in you. Verse 4, For indeed he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we will live with him because of the power of God directed towards you. Again, the Christian is completely different than the non-Christian. The Christian has a new life, and that new life has been described as being taken from death to life, right, from death to resurrection. The new Christian has, or the Christian has entered into a new relationship with the law, a new relationship uh, to God. The Christian has a new purpose in life. And the Christian is aware of the fact that there's a new power within him, an ability that has entered in his life. Something has changed in his life because of his union with Christ. Verse 5, look at 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Paul says, Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize about this uh, this about yourself that Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? I would suggest to you that if a person is saved and Christ is in them, there's fundamentally something radically different from them than when they used to be dead in their trespasses and sins. There's new power. There's new life, new ability, a new awareness of that power. So how do you know that Christ is in you? How do you know that you're a Christian? Because sometimes people come up to me and say, well, I'm just not sure. You know, I, I think I'm a Christian, but I'm, I'm not sure. I look at my life and I'm not sure. So what would you say to somebody who comes up and asks you that kind of question? Paul says, examine yourself. See if Christ is in you. What would you say to yourself if you have that kind of same kind of question? Am I really saved? Well, it seems to me, based on this principle, that a Christian is somebody that has been provided with a new power seems evident to me that we'd be looking for that new power, right? We'd be looking for some kinds of signs of spiritual life. Uh, a physician, he has certain tools that he uses to certain methods to check on a physical level, vital signs to see uh, if a person's body is uh, still uh, uh, working, however weak those vital signs might be. And as a soul doctor, so to speak, I'll give you a, a few of these that I think that you can apply on a spiritual level. Some questions that I think are helpful to use on yourself or somebody else who's struggling with this issue, if they're Christian, to examine themselves to see if Christ indeed dwells within them. And there are four of them, and they're pretty simple. So if, as I've already said, if the Christian has been described in terms of one who has moved from death to life, question number one is, are are there any signs of life in you? Are there any signs of life in you? And two quick places to look to see if there's any signs of life to you. Number one is what do you think of the Word of God? What do you think of the Word of God? Do you love God's Word? Do you love hearing the truth of the Word of God? Do you love listening to the Scripture, hearing the Scriptures exposited? Do you like to learn about the Word of God? Do you want to learn more about the Word of God? First Peter 2, verse 1, Peter says, Therefore, putting aside all malice... And all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, verse 2, 1 Peter 2, verse 2, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation 
if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. So do you long for the Word of God? Do you love the Word of God? Do you want to grow in your understanding of the Word of God? Do you love to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Right? Have you tasted of the goodness of God? And, and, and again, what you did not understand at one point, now you understand the, the Word of God. Uh, again, is there? Uh, what do you think of the Word? That's a great place to check for vital signs. Number two, another place to take your spiritual pulse is what do you think of the cross? What do you think of the word and what do you think of the cross? Right? Do you love to hear the message of the cross? Is the cross, the message of the cross, is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ the most wonderful thing that you ever have heard of? That's the question. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us, to us who are being saved, it is what? It's the power of God. To the, to the world, to those who are lost, it's foolishness. To those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22, For indeed Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and, and the wisdom of God. Now again, the natural man, the unregenerate man, shows no signs of life. The, Christ, the, the non-Christian, the natural man, cannot stand to come to a place of worship. That's why there's more people outside the building on a Sunday morning than there are inside the building. They don't want to be here. It's a waste of time. All this blood and stuff and all of this... Uh, guy dying on a cross. It makes absolutely no sense. Why would I come and listen to that nonsense and some guy talk for an hour when I could go golfing on a Sunday morning? It's a natural man. So when it comes to the word of the living God, the natural man has no desire to listen to it. No desire to read it. In fact, it makes absolutely no sense to them. They can't understand it. 1 Corinthians 2.14 explains why. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they're foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised or spiritually discerned. He doesn't have the Spirit. He can't understand. Romans 7 and 7. The mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. It does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Verse 8. Romans 7 verse 8. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So the Bible makes absolutely no sense to the natural man. The natural man has no use for the word of God, and the natural man hates and despises the cross by which he is saved. So the question is, what about you? Are there any signs of spiritual life in you? And I want to tell you this by way of encouragement, and I want you to listen to what I'm going to say. A man with an extremely weak pulse is in a much different position than a man who has no pulse whatsoever. Did you hear what I said? A man with an extremely weak pulse is in a much different position than a man with no pulse. Is there any sign of life in you whatsoever? Again, we fall into the category of going, well, yeah, but I'm not as good as I need to be, therefore I'm not... Okay, so now we're talking about you again. How many weeks have I been spending saying we're not talking about us anymore? Because Jesus Christ is the issue. Is there any sign of life in you? If you have uh, a life, if the Christian has been described, uh, Christian life has been described in terms of moving from death to life, is there any life of you? What do you think of the word? What do you think of the cross? Number two, the second test you can apply. If a Christian has entered into an entirely new relationship to the law and to God, can you say that you love God? Can you honestly say that you love Him? Can you say that you love Him, and are you aware of the fact that He loves you? Are you aware of the fact that there's been a fundamental change in the relationship between you and God? Ephesians 2 and 12. Paul says, Remember that you are at a time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world, but... Ephesians 2 and 13, but now God, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, verse 19. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. 
Do you have a love for God who saved you? A God who pulled you out? A God who's given you hope? A God who's brought you from aliens and strangers, from death to life, and now he, you are in his own household? That's a sign of life, that you love God. Test number three, if a Christian has a new purpose in life, can you honestly say that's true about you? Right? Are you thinking about God, thinking about Christ, thinking about ways to serve? Is there a joy in your heart at the possibility of doing something on their behalf in uh, obedience? Psalm 40, verse 8, the psalmist says, I delight to do your will, O my God. Is that true in your life? Is there a delight to obey God? Again, are you bringing forth the fruit of righteousness, fruit for God? Again, the natural man never thinks of these questions. The natural man never thinks in these kind of categories. And lastly, if the Christian life is one that has a new power and ability that has entered into it because of our union with Christ, uh, are you aware of that power? Are you aware of that power? Are you aware of a, a new desire in your life now to honor Christ and to serve him? Is there a genuine desire to, to obey and again to see uh, God and Christ honor in your life? Here's a good question. Are you amazed at yourself? Are you amazed at yourself? When you look at your life and look at who you used to be and now see your life in Christ, are you amazed at the transformation of life that has occurred in you? Now again, if you answer yes to those questions, you're giving evidence that there are signs of life in you. They're giving evidence of Christ's life in you, Christ in you. Now listen, I never ask those questions, and I never ask the question in terms of, do you feel the answer to those questions is yes with great power? Because at times we're weak. And at times, the reality is we're just babes in Christ. But babes in Christ are never less babes in Christ. Right? Babes you may be. And if you continue to feed on the milk of the word, you're going to grow up. You're going to be able to feast on the meat of the word. You're going to continue to grow stronger, and your spiritual pulse is going to increase. Again, I said it twice. I think this is the third time. I'm going to remind you there's a tremendous difference between a man with a weak pulse and a man that has no pulse whatsoever. Are there any signs of life? And if you answer no to all those questions, if that there are no signs in life in you, then you're still under the law, you're still under God's wrath, still eternally condemned, and that's what waits for you in your sin, condemnation. But the problem is solved if you do one thing. You repent. You turn from your sin. You come to Christ. Because that's the only way that you can experience this new life, and that's the only way that you can become a Christian, is you turn to Christ. Verse 4 again. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another. Jesus Christ, he again, he's the only solution. He's the answer to the problems. He's the only way to come to Christ, or to be a Christian. He's the only way to escape the coming wrath that is directed towards those in sin and those in rebellion. Through the body of Christ, Christ who came to the earth, Christ who suffered the penalty of death on behalf of the believer to set the believer free from sin and condemnation. Therefore, the believer is no longer under the condemnation of the law. The believer is in a new relationship with the person of God himself. Just like the widow was freed from that former relationship to her husband, now the widow is free. There's a death that has occurred. She, she is a, a free to be joined to another, to another husband. And in our case, the issue is now we're free to be joined to another, that being the person of Jesus Christ himself, the one it says in the text who was raised from the dead. The whole underlying premise of the book of Romans is that being joined to Christ changes our lives. There's a transformation of life that occurs. Right? Being joined to Christ allows us to bear fruit for God. We are different from who we used to be. Delivered from the law, united with Christ, so that we might bring forth to God, and again, a genuine, uh, redempted life, a redeemed life, is a life that produces holiness. I did not say perfection. Christ brings the perfection to the table, okay? So if you're struggling with perfection, get rid of it. Come to Christ. He brings the perfection to the table. All of our attention is focused on him. We have responsibilities, as I said earlier, but our attention is focused on him. My brethren, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, that you might belong to another, it says in ESV. And again, the King James says you should be married to another, to him who raised from the dead. 
I mean, what a great illustration. Can you think of a better illustration of what it means to belong to the Lord Jesus Christ in salvation than the illustration of marriage? Again, it speaks of the love relationship with the Savior. It speaks about Jesus Christ, the passionate lover, the devoted bridegroom, the faithful husband of his bride, the church. And we're that bride, eternally joined to him, having been freed from the law, having been saved by God, enabled and commanded to live holy lives bearing fruits. Bearing fruit, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another. Right? To the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I thought to myself, I, I shouldn't say this, but I should say this. You know what? Because we're so mixed up in the world. <clears throat> Excuse me. So mixed up in the world, so mixed up in Christianity. Did you know, I'm kidding. Did you know that Christianity happens to be about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ? He happens to be central. He happens to be the issue. We're not really concerned about you living your best life now. We're concerned about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, what he has done, and what he has provided for the genuine believer. There's so many places, and I'm not going off on a tangent, but I am. There's so many places that outside their door, they put a sign that say church, and they're really not a church because everybody in there doesn't understand who Jesus Christ is. They don't understand the preeminence of the person of Jesus Christ. They don't understand what Christ has done for them. They don't understand what he's done for them and their salvation. They certainly don't understand what they've done, what he does for them and their sanctification. <clears throat> and they're off doing this thing or that thing with the smoke machine going on in the background and nobody can see each other in the room because it's too foggy, Right? Jesus Christ is everything. Christianity is about Christ, the body of Christ, that we might be joined to him. But think about this. What happens in a marriage relationship? <clears throat> the young lady, unless you're kind of modern and really whacked, <clears throat> hope that doesn't apply to anybody who's here, but <clears throat> the young lady actually takes the name of her husband. There's that kind of transformation. There's that kind of new relationship. These two people that have no blood relationship, you better not, or you're going to be able to, your grandkids will be able to count to 12 on their fingers, okay? Here's two people that have no natural tie, no natural blood relationship. They get married, and now that union is greater than any other blood relationship union. The husband and wife have power over each other, even in a legal sense, not the children, unless there's been some kind of decree made. You know what I'm saying? That two people that come together, that union is so strong, she takes that person's last name. We're joined to Christ, we're married to Christ, and what do we call ourselves? Christians. Joined to Christ. Our position has changed radically, completely. What tremendous pride should fill our heart. I mean, I've not seen, I've seen a number of weddings. I can't think of one where I saw the, 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 the bride just crying. I can't believe I just married this fellow. Maybe down the road, but not the day of the wedding. <laughs> Most brides I've seen at weddings are beaming. They're so overjoyed. And what joy should fill our heart that we're the bride of Christ. There's no higher privilege for us to carry then the name of Christ, the one whom God has given a name above all names. How, how could we ever do anything to dishonor him? Why would we ever think in those kind of categories? How could we do anything other than to strive to continually live a holy life before him with our object in life, our objective in life to honor him and make him everything? To be married to Christ, to be his bride, we have a unique privilege that provides for us or produces in us holiness. We have direct access to the Father in heaven through prayer. Uh, again, I guarantee you, you walk into the mayor's office, you're going to get arrested. You can go to the King of Kings anytime you want through prayer because of Christ. That produ production of holiness, that confidence that, that Christ, again, is going to provide for all of our needs. Why would we be anxious for anything with, by prayer and supplication, we can make our requests known to God. What things can you solve in your life? Me, I can't solve very many in mine, especially that are important. Why would we be anxious? Why would we not go to the Father in prayer? Why would we not have confidence that he'll provide for all of our needs exactly like he says he'll do? 
He'll give us his care, his protection. He'll secure us eternally, that we don't have to worry about our salvation. He's given us the word, the Bible, uh, the ministry of the person of the Holy Spirit living within us, the ministry of the Holy Spirit living within us that makes us more and more like Christ, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit who, again, wrote the words, the power behind the pen of the entire Bible. And when we read the Bible, it does make sense to us. That's because the Holy Spirit has illumined our minds to the truth because he's conforming us to the image of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. At the same time, making us more and more like the Savior. That's a pretty good relationship. That's a pretty in-depth relationship. We've died to the law, died to the curse of the law. We're no longer under condemnation. We're under grace, and we've been united with a marvelous Savior. Amen? Our Father and our God, we're thankful for that great, wonderful truth in this portion of Scripture, this glorious truth, this sanctifying truth. Again, why would we ever want to do anything to dishonor you when you have done so much to elevate us up? And what a great privilege we have being your sons and daughters and being the bride of the Savior. We love you. We're thankful for the truth. We're thankful for Christ. We're thankful for your power in us through the person of the Holy Spirit. Thanks for a great uh, day of uh, worship in the Word. And now we pray for your uh, blessing on our time of fellowship after we're done here and go outside. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.